Hey, are you a fantasy football player? Are you really angry because your season has been busted? Are you one and two like I am? Are you not enjoying yourself? FanDuel is the answer for your problems. It's fantasy football for everyday fans. And you reset, start over, you do your thing week to week, and it's great. It's a new contest starting every week. It's something for everyone. Lots of contests to choose from. Starting at a buck, one dollar. That's it. Pick a contest, choose your team. Watch your score real-time. More than 2.5 million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel and all those other sports as well, basketball, baseball, and so forth. But we are in fantasy football season. And you can sign up today real easy, FanDuel.com. You click the Join Now button and use the promo code Jonah. New users get free entry into the NFL Sunday Million Contest. That's one more than $1 million in cash prizes when you make your first deposit on FanDuel. Just visit FanDuel.com. Sign up with the promo code Jonah. That's FanDuel, F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Promo code Jonah. Thank you to FanDuel for sponsoring the podcast. Go ahead. What are you concerned about? You're now recording. You're yeah. about to know. Yeah. So you guys don't know that uh, when Jonah <laughs> records, he puts on these big headphones, and the only purpose a headphone really serves is to hold his microphone close to your mouth. So basically, we look like, we look like two guys in the cockpit of a helicopter. <laughs> we have a helicopter pilot <laughs> headphones on with the microphone. But the, but it, like the headphones aren't even... I guess they're plugged in, but only for the sake of the microphone. Correct. There is another input that you could use to make us hear each other, but so, it's complicated and I'm a dummy. Well, then the other thing is, um, the other thing is because we can't hear each other in in our yes. ears, but these headphones are like big, almost noise canceling things. So you have to talk extra loud. So we just sound like uh, we each sound like the person on the train on the cell phone talking louder because there's more background noise which makes you talk louder which makes everyone else talk louder so that's what we sound like right now. <laughs> the train that took you six hours never in your life have you had a 9, 9 a.m. Monday meeting and I'm like 9 a.m. <laughs> let's bang this out shit happened over the weekend you're like cool great yeah, yeah I had a two hour two, two minute <coughs> 40 kilometers as for you guys that are like into marathoning uh, and you watched the Berlin Marathon over the weekend with Elliot Kipchoge basically Elliot Kipchoge could cover the 40 kilometers from my house to the office faster than the train did today. It's, uh, it's very is... discouraging. Uh, and it would, aside from uh, the Berlin Marathon, I mean, that was I was going to lead with that. I'm not going to lie. That's what, that's, what people, that's what about the tips of people's tongues right now. But, uh, wow, shit went down over the weekend. And it's funny, the way that I process stories, because I, I never know what I'm going to write about. So if something's yeah. happening, whatever it is, the hikers trade Mickey Cabrera, whatever it is, I email myself. I set up a chain. I go, Mickey, email, email, email. I have 65 Gmail things. Okay. And that's how I, that's my filing system, basically. And so I started doing that, and the subject was Cap, which is yep. so funny because Cap is not remotely playing a game. He's probably <laughs> never going to play a game. Yeah. But I just decided it was Cap, and uh, this is when it went wide. This is when it became a thing. 
And, well, one thing that we're going to get to is the meta conversation, because I actually think I'm almost too late for this thing. Like, now it's safe to jump in. I probably should jump in earlier. <laughs> so, on a very basic level, what did you make about where we were on Friday versus where we are today in the dialogue? What, what, what changed for you, if anything, over the weekend? What surprised me was the willingness of certain NFL team owners uh, to depart from what Trump is Daniel saying. Daniel Snyder! Right. And here's a guy who's... The Redskins who's, mascot! Right, who's, whose literal team is literally named after a racist slur. Correct. And he's saying, hey, President, you're the one that's being divisive. And he's not necessarily wrong, but when, when, you, when, you, uh, when you find yourself... But, but I was going to say when you find yourself as the person who's being more divisive than Daniel Snyder, then you probably need to check yourself. But that <laughs> requires a level of self-awareness that I'm not sure the president has. Um, but it is funny. Well, it's not. It's When you think about why, what prompted some of these NFL team owners yeah. to side with their players over Donald Trump, I mean, it was still money. Because the rest of the time, the... These owners are more than happy to side with anyone who says to these um, uppity, uh, outspoken Negroes, shut up, play the game, we don't pay you for your opinion, we don't pay you to have concerns outside of football, just shut up and play the game, and we will tell you, and be grateful for the opportunity as well. But when Donald Trump started saying, hey, why why don't white people boycott, he didn't say white people, but this is his his intended audience. He said, well, why don't people boycott the NFL? Boycott the NFL until these um, protests are done. Now he's messing with the owner's money, yeah. right? And the owners like guys like Donald Trump because they're all rich, old, conservative white guys who know how to take care of each other's money. But now Donald Trump is threatening their money. So they say, oh, wait a minute. Which of us is actually make? which of these groups of people is actually making me more money? Because Donald Trump, we might be buddies, but Donald Trump's not going to get back there and cover a kickoff. He's not going to throw a pass. So if Donald Trump is saying boycott this and people stop buying tickets, now we're in trouble because people, in, whether or not the players are protesting during the anthem, you still come to see the you pay money to see the pay, players play. And now if Donald Trump is saying don't pay money to see the players play, now the owners have to do something. What they have to do is get on the side of their players because if you don't have players, who's going to get on the field? Because again, it's not going to be Donald Trump. It's not going to be Daniel Snyder. There's a lot of ways I want to go. Um, <laughs> And I should mention, by the way, that uh, Morgan is one of the best sports business writers around. And so in addition to having a TED Talk on sports and race, which was outstanding, and a lot of other things, there's a business angle here, too. And so let's oh, can, we, can we do a quick plug? Yeah, please. Plug because it. now it's official. Yes. The, the best Canadian sports writing anthology is now in store, so you guys can buy it. Um, yeah, a lot of like uh, friends of the pod, either yeah. friends or not, are in that book. It's great. Exactly. Eva's in it, right? Eva Holland, I think. There's a bunch of yep. people. Yep, Cahal Kelly's in it. Yeah. Um, my good friend Dwayne Watson's in it. Shereen Ahmed's in it. Um, Canada's killing There's a lot of good Canadians. Yeah, so go out, and, go out and get that. Yeah. Because now, because <laughs> sometimes I get in trouble around here for like my ego and stuff. But, uh, this is the nature of our job. It's yeah. self- I'm wildly uncomfortable with it, so I almost do it as like a tap dance. Like, ha, 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 I'm a best-selling author. Yay. Like, the thing I, is, I'm cringing. But now the thing is, um, other people have said I'm one of the best because the, the title yeah, is yeah. Are best Canadian. Are you award-winning journalist? Yeah. So now when the bosses want to get mad at me for having an ego, I'm like, hey, man, it's not my fault. Other people <laughs> said 
I'm one of the best. Go take it up with them. But yeah, go buy the book. You can get it online. It should be in stores now too. But uh, go do that on ECW Press. I like it. Stacy May Fowles was uh, the editor. Yeah, so I did know go. that as well. And Stacy May and I share a publisher. So I think we've only met in person maybe once, but she's she's fun. She's a, and she's a good egg too. Um, so on the sports business angle, the NFL owners decide that it's expedient. Yes, they decide that they're they're more interested in taking care of their players because they can't win without a. The anything, whatever, yes. anything else. NASCAR comes out and says, fuck this. We'll fire everybody. Because <laughs> number one, whatever you think of the NFL's fans, and I think the NFL, probably the fans lean white and older, but there are a million NFL fans of every stripe. NASCAR fans are probably a little bit more homogeneous, and furthermore, NASCAR athletes, at least in terms of how they look, are very, very homogeneous. So are, is it in their best interest to say fuck all this, because their business interests would seem to be very white, very conservative, all that. Yeah, well, the NFL's fan base is truly diverse, right? And, yes. and this is this is what has made the, the these dueling boycotts so fascinating. Yeah. Is you had one group of people saying, until Colin Kaepernick gets a job, until you racist owners uh, set your racism aside and give a tryout to a guy who's clearly qualified to do this job, mm-hmm. we're going to boycott. Um, and then on the other, then you have people who believe the exact opposite of that. And they say, we're not happy either. We should boycott, right? And then, in the, then there are all kinds of fans in the middle. Um, now, I'm not an expert on NASCAR's fan base, but we all know where this sport was born yes. and what their, what their base base is. Now, like in the especially late 90s, early 2000s, um, you know, there was a big expansion of that sport and a big effort to to, to mainstream. Yeah, yeah. Um, but its roots are still its roots. Its roots are still southern and rural. Like, let's remember what happened the first time. Remember the first for? I can't say I remember it, but I read about it and I saw the highlights because I was like probably a year old when it happened. And the first time there was like a big NASCAR race on TV, and uh, you know NASCAR was really trying to to to. Move past this stereotype that it was a sport for like hillbillies and country bumpkins that don't know how to act, right? And they finally get the Daytona 500 on TV, and what happens? There's a fist fight. Kale Yarbrough and Bobby Allison they get into a fist fight, right? But there's still a still a certain part of NASCAR, like a big part, that that's still their base. Yeah. Um, So the people that the 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 white conservative Southerners that Donald Trump was speaking to when he said hey, they should fire these SOBs when they protest. They're the same type of people that NASCAR is speaking to um, when they say, well, anyone's fired if they do this, right? Yes. Uh, so to that part, and, and the thing about NASCAR is, they're, uh, just like a politician, you play to your base, yeah. and if it means that it diminishes your appeal outside um, of that base, then it might, but if you're just if you're just playing these politics for, for business gain, it's probably smarter to, to keep your existing customers happy than to piss off your existing customers in order to chase customers that you haven't quite won over yet. Now, the different, the other difference between this and the NFL is that yeah. um, the like NFL players being well-rounded people, like the, the teams, team owners, the league, they are more than happy to showcase players as being well-rounded human beings mm-hmm. as long as it's in the service of selling the NFL, right? But then when it comes into conflict, like Myron Roll, who uh, was a Rhodes Scholar, 
right? Now, if he had just accepted, if he had just earned the Rhodes Scholarship, earned the invitation, and then said, well, sorry, guys, I don't want to go to Oxford. I'm going to go play in the NFL. The NFL would be selling that because then they'd be able to say, these guys aren't all dumb jocks. We have this guy that turned down a Rhodes Scholarship. He's a genius. But the fact that he said, you know what, I actually am going to go to Oxford. And then when he came back and tried to get back into the NFL, they're like, we don't know if you're dedicated to football. And so the idea of all these players, too, um, protesting, like actual real political issues that, that affect their lives and the lives of their loved ones, it's only a problem because it's not something the NFL can use to sell and market. Whereas mm. in other aspects, they absolutely want to uh, package these guys as as multifaceted human beings. As long as it's for, as long as it's to market the league first, and not to actually showcase their actual humanity and 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 their connection to issues that have nothing to do with football or commerce. Well, I guess this. It feels like. The stick to sports argument. <laughs> wincing, wincing. <laughs> Two things. Stick to sports can be I'm a racist and I want to feel comfortable with my racism. Or I am willing to allow that maybe stick to sports is literally my kids hate me, my boss hates me, my wife hates me. I literally want to turn my brain off and watch sports. <laughs> I'm not saying that's a responsible point of view, but I think there are people that genuinely feel that way. So if you're putting forth you know, the argument that, oh, if it advances the product, it doesn't advance the product. Maybe some people who are pissed off about it are not pissed off about, like, your uppity. They're pissed off about it because it's like, dude, I just, like, I own Julio Jones in my fantasy. <laughs> Can I just see if he scores a touchdown or not? Is there a place for that, or are we just, we're too far gone, we can't do that? Um, there's a place for that because the people that want to... Like the, especially the daily fantasy sports people, they're yeah. going to do what they do anyway. And the thing, the the... One of the major, and this... I might have said own Julio Jones and Fantasy. That's, also, that's a whole other Well, remember the, the ESPN, ESPN slave auction thing, right? For all these people that Jeez. thought ESPN is losing viewers because it's gone too liberal. They had a literal auction of human beings uh, on their network. Well, and I'm a very avid fantasy player. It just makes me, I'm like checking what I'm saying. Like, what did I say? I have this guy on my team. I'm associated with this fellow well, who sometimes <laughs> scores points. Like, it's a, it's very fraught. Well, the, anyway, that's the side. But I can see how this current, the, the current political climate can be really jarring to the daily fantasy sports crowd in particular because the daily fantasy, like, in general, people already see football players is something other than human. Yes, correct. Um, and daily fantasy sports just amplifies that because now all they really are is just like stats on a piece of paper. So now this guy who's only ever been words and numbers on a screen to you jumps up and says, I'm worried about my family. I'm protesting police brutality because I lost a brother or a cousin to that. You're like, hey, wait a minute. I didn't bargain for any of this. You yesterday were just a name on a, on a, on a screen and yeah. some numbers on a screen. So I could see how that could be jarring. Um, but for the stick-to-sports crowd, if they're honest with themselves, yeah. um, they'll recognize that these two spheres... Well, sports, sports has never been completely separate from any other sphere, um, whether it's politics or commerce. So again, no one says... Like when LeBron James uh, shows up on a Sprite commercial, no one says, keep your basketball out of my soft drinks. <laughs> No one says, keep your soft drinks out of my basketball, <laughs> right? He's allowed mm-hmm. because Sprite is paying him and Sprite's making money by being associated with him. It's fine. But then when LeBron James says, vote Clinton, 
Ohio needs a Democrat. And LeBron James says, hey, President Trump, you bum. Uh, Steph Curry already turned down your invitation. You bum is so good. <laughs> now it's- LaShawn McCoy said... Makes me sad. Our president is, is an asshole. I think he said "ah uh, asshole." So right. sure people criticize. Oh, he's tweeting quickly, man. Yeah, but you bum. Yeah, it's higher level. It, it feels so, it feels like I just threw it out there. You bum's good. Okay, the best insults to me aren't aren't swear words. They're words you can say in open conversation. Yeah, it's just how you apply them, like uh, uh. Clown, like to call someone a clown. Yeah. You, who is this clown? Especially, who is this clown? It just right? diminishes that person. It's like, this <laughs> yes. person is not worth my time. You bum. <laughs> yes. Bum is, is just, it, it, as the kids would say, it's, it's savage. Like, I, I, the would, thing is, I would actually never call somebody a bum. Because it goes to, like, the essence of their person. Yeah. So when we say bum, we're not even talking about, like, the way people use it. Uh, um, if you're homeless. Idiomatically, like, oh, like, a, like. As a synonym for, like, homeless person. No, no, no. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with that. This is, like, your character. Yeah. You're a character. You're a bum. You're no good. There's nothing. There's no substance. There's nothing there. (laughs) Yes. So, bum I like. Clown I like. There's one my mom uses. My mom is far from the only person to use it. Some people will will hear it. Will hear this and recognize, like, a gutter snipe. Whoa! You know what a gutter snipe is? Isn't it, like, a... I don't know what it like. It literally is but like a little snake, or like it a might little, be like an eel. Like, isn't it something that it, it kind of might be? In the but gutter? to call someone that, yeah, is like. And again, these are all things they're never going to get bleeped out. No, but these are the best insults to me. Yeah, far superior to anything you can say that could get bleeped out. So LeBron says, "President Trump, you bum." He hasn't. He hasn't. Um, he hasn't violated. You know this. This this border between sports and everything else in the world because that border never really existed because when he was on a Kia, you think LeBron James actually drives a Kia, <laughs> but he can go on a Kia commercial. He doesn't drive a Kia. Right, maybe, yeah. maybe. A lot he, of them seem to drive Kia. Well, these guys give, those are the cars they give out to their cousins and third level friends yeah, and yeah. stuff. Right. <laughs> but no one says, keep your sports out of my, uh, automotive industry. Yeah. Right. So for, and this is even before we get into this long history of sports and politics, yes. but just for people to jump up right now and say, keep my sports as sports. Well, again, you don't say that when the athlete's on the toothpaste commercial or the soft drink commercial or whatever. So don't act surprised, especially when you're a black athlete dealing with a president who is a white supremacist. Um, the stakes are even higher. So why would you not react that way? Why would you stay silent? As a black athlete, black human being in a country where the president is a white supremacist, you have Donald Trump said, what the hell do you have to lose? Well, with a white supremacist in office, everything. Um, So to act like folks shouldn't be concerned about these things is either disingenuous or willfully ignorant. Bruce Arthur used, I think, almost as he said, you're either dim or disingenuous. A great column yesterday. Talking about that, and there was, uh, I've been reading and reading all weekend. One person had a tweet that said something to the effect of, uh, I'm a little sleep deprived. Let's see if I can get this right. Well, you should have got the coffee. I know I don't drink coffee. I'm not a caffeine person. <gasps> I'm a journalist who doesn't drink coffee. Who are you? I'm full of energy. Now. Oh, my goodness. I'm just trying to make the, the, uh, the point kick in. No, I was talking about, I remember what it is. 
who are these rich athletes to talk about this stuff? And the person basically said, since when have people ever listened to the voices of the poor? I don't care how liberal or enlightened you are. Nobody does. None of us do. If you don't have a platform, you don't. How do we know? Absolutely. I could go talk to a person on the corner, but that person at best is going to talk to me, or that's it. Yep. You don't have a platform. And this episode of the Jonah Carey Podcast is brought to you by Blue Apron. Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking, cooking, home cooking, <laughs> accessible to everyone. I've used Blue Apron. I love it. Listen, I'm a doofus in the kitchen, but 45 minutes from the time you take everything out of the box... Tilts on your plate. Uh, all kinds of great possibilities. They've established partnerships with more than 100, 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. And the result is great food. It's really good. It's easy to do. They make it all easy. They portion everything out. As I said, even a Dunkoff like me can do it. Upcoming meals include summer vegetable and egg paninis with Calabrian chili mayonnaise and caprese salad, catching that end of the summer, early fall. Soy glazed pork and rice cakes. With bok choy, marinated green beans, skillet vegetable chili with cornmeal and cheddar drop biscuits. That sounds great. And garlic butter, shrimp and corn with green bean salad and roasted purple tomatoes. As I said, it's terrific. It's about 10 bucks per person per meal, roughly out of the box. And think about that. You've got really interesting, flavorful, flavorful different kind of choices. Much better than, you know, just going it yourself. And uh, it's terrific. And get this. If you check out this week's menu, get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Jonah. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Jonah. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. I actually think that a lot of people cannot get out of their own space. They can't understand somebody wanting to do something for a large group of people that yes. has nothing to do with themselves. And that's the thing. And I know that, yes, a lot of athletes do come from poor backgrounds, but let's say that you're, let's say you that you're Colin Kaepernick. Right. Colin Kaepernick's not poor. Wasn't he grew up poor at all. Maybe he wants to represent the interests of other people and, and empathy. And yes. People don't understand empathy. <laughs> like they literally don't understand yeah. empathy. It kills me. It is insane. And it's... Well, right. So, like, when Kaepernick first started doing this last year. Yeah. Well, hold on. Because at that same summer, right, what you also saw in the WNBA was a lot of players. WNBA was, started all this shit. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to write the column about this. I'm sure it won't. I don't know. It might but be, the, but did the mainstream. But I'm going to write about, about WNBA extensively. But did the mainstream listen to the WNBA? No. Not quite. Why not? Well, because they're they're not rich. At least not off of their WNBA salaries, right? That's why a lot of these players play in a second league overseas where they can make real money. Um, but when the rich NFL guy speaks or doesn't speak, people yeah. oh, start... Oh, get to Cam Newton. Don't worry. <laughs> or no, even like Cam, or Kaepernick. Like his yeah, whole yeah. protest oh, yeah, was yeah, silent. Yeah, yeah. He didn't do anything. No. Right? He just said, when the anthem plays, I'm going to sit over here. Well, Reverend Brown wrote a gigantic and wonderful piece. I've been meaning to get to it, yes. talk about... Oh, it's very good. And did not actually get to talk to Colin Kaepernick because he doesn't want to talk. Yeah, and so, but when he when he makes his, his feelings known, people listen. Why? Because he's and, and because he's rich and because he's famous and because he has his platform. And then come the trolls to use the, so, it's, so first it's, well, why should I listen to you because you're not rich? And then when the rich guy speaks up, well, how dare you talk about rights of poor people because you're rich? How do you even know what they went through? And, and yeah, in a lot of ways it shouldn't 
really matter. And yeah, this this idea that you cannot um, you cannot have strong feelings about and want to improve conditions that don't have to do with like your immediate circumstance is insane. It is. I don't know where it comes from, except for like, except for. Remember during the election, Trump wins the election. So first thing they try to tell us is that, well, there are more Trumpsters out there than you guys realize if you would get out of your bubble and all the polls are wrong. First of all, the polls weren't wrong. The polls all said that Hillary Clinton was going to get more votes than Donald Trump, and that was what happened. Um, The polls didn't account for the Electoral College. Then the other thing we, we always heard, and like, especially among people that live in Trump's America, or people, or journalists willing to go there, is that like people like us, all of our, all of us liberals, we need to get out of our bubbles, right? The thing about the bubbles is like, my bubble is like super inclusive. I have people of all kinds of colors in my bubble. People that speak different languages, uh, gay people, straight people, all in my bubble. Um, you know who's not in my bubble? Are unempathetic trolls. And so the people that need to get out of their bubble are probably the Trump voters who, who voted for this guy either because he was a sexist and a xenophobe and a white supremacist or in spite of all that, which isn't any better. No. The point is uh, all these liberals whom you chastise about living in their bubbles, there's all kinds of people in the bubble. So the bubble is still – super diverse and maybe the other people who can't understand empathy need to get out of their bubble here's the thing morgan people didn't do a good enough job of going to appalachia but wow what a great job they did of going to the south side of chicago what a great job they did of going to west baltimore that demographic was really well taken care of those people had their voices heard man that was exceptional reporting on the part of new york times washington Post. Oh, they all killed it listen to west baltimore uh, this whole emphasis on the white working class. There's no other working class but the white working class. Thank you. No other working class. You can't be Latino. You can't be from the Philippines. You can't be black. You can't be none of it. Because only white. On the one hand, you have a president that says, I'm going to build this wall to keep the Mexicans out because they're stealing our jobs. Oh, oh, so they're coming to work, which makes them what kind of class? The working class. Right. Do you mean working class Mexicans are in America? A lot of them. Yes, <laughs> a lot. Right. And so, like, who are having their votes suppressed too? But well, absolutely, right? Yeah, and like you know, my family, like my grandfather was a musician. Yeah. You know, but they lived in a working class neighborhood in Chicago because his father worked in a lumber yard. My dad's dad worked in a steel mill. My dad worked in an airplane factory. These are working, black working class African Americans. We don't ever hear about uh, what's important to them. I suffered the same. Unions went away. Everybody got fucked. Mm -hmm. Whatever color you are, unions going away in 1977, if you were part of a union and now you're not, your rights aren't protected, you're fucked. Doesn't matter what color you are. Well, right. And so... (laughs) <laughs> this this idea though that like pro athletes should only agitate for something that affects them personally immediately. Yeah. A- again, as you said, it, it, that type of thinking can only s- spring from 
either an unwillingness or inability to empathize, right? And so, but everyone's asking us to empathize with the same people. Yeah. They can't empathize with these athletes. Oh, put your shoes in. Put your put your, go stand in the shoes of the white working class voter. I'm like, hey man, it's not too different from my black working class dad and grandfather. Like, yeah. listen, man, everyone knows that. Like when my dad, this is in Canada now. When we worked, he worked at. Uh, now it's Bombardier. When I was growing up, it was De Havilland, and they made like the Dash Eight and the Twin Otter and planes like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and and they would. They would go on strike. He would get laid off. There would be weeks at a time where we're eating leftovers like every single night. Like we understand. I'm black. I understand the working class struggle. We lived it. Yeah. Yet somehow what what our concerns don't count, but I'm supposed to listen, I've been in your shoes, but you haven't been in my shoes. Yeah. Right? Like from from the from the standpoint of economic anxiety, like that was what we grew up with. So I have been in your shoes. But have you been in our shoes as the black person just trying to walk from the house to the grocery store and doesn't want to have to worry about a cop beating them up. Well, until you're willing to do that, like, don't tell me to put my feet in your shoes because I've done it. But And if I get rich, guess what? I'm still going to be concerned about the working class, still going to be concerned about racial profiling. Why I don't understand why it's so difficult for other people to understand. Well, and, and I think I've said this on the podcast, I said this to friends or whatever, but... It, it's not even Trump that makes me madder than everybody else. It's not even flat-out racism. It's the New York Times that makes me racist. The, the fact that the hillbilly elegy is held up as, like, this is the best book that's ever been written about anything. The fact that it's economic anxiety only on one side. The fact that there's plastered all over the place. Emails, emails, emails. That turns the election. Jared Kushner, running emails. Wow, there's no stories about What about that. his emails? It's just, there's something about mainstream, if you want to call it liberal press, or just MSM, whatever, Bending over backwards to make the point of the other side that is so stupid. Just report whatever's out there. If there are facts out there, and this is where the facts lead you, then report it. Don't conjure up stories to tell us about how enlightened you are because you went to West Virginia. You know what's going to kill journalism? It's false balance. Yes! Chris Eliza is the worst person of all time. It's false balance. I think he follows me on balance. <laughs> It's false balance. I can't stand balance. this. Listen. By the way... I have my, whatever my beliefs are. If the other side was quote-unquote right and I was wrong, okay, don't take my side either. I'm the idiot. Fine. Okay, here's the thing. All right. False balance is so stupid. I'm a journalist. You're a journalist. There might be other journalists listening. There might be people like who want to hire, hire you some more or hire <laughs> me. It's better that you know what you're getting. But I will say this about journalism. And then this way, if I wind up in your shop or like our bosses, my bosses are listening, they can't act surprised. As a journalist, you don't ever have to be objective. You just have to be fair. Yes. There's a difference. Because even when you're trying to be objective, you make judgments all the time about, even when you go get the information, but you get you make judgments, value judgments about how to prioritize this information to put it in your story and, and, and sell it. And so I'll give you an example. Like uh, I'll give you two examples. So last week when, when um, Brooke Baldwin... She had Keith Reed and Clay Travis on to talk about Jamel Hill, right? And Clay Travis went and said what he said. And this is the first time I actually knew – I ever figured out that Clay Travis was like an actual human being. I thought he was a bot. I had never seen his face <laughs> or heard his voice, right? Yeah. I thought he was just like a like a a machine. You pushed a button and just got crappy conservative sports takes. But, he, yeah, he's a human being. I think I've only heard Trump's voice like – Three or four times since the election, by the way. I, I Good for uncanny you. Uncanny ability to like not. Good for you. Aside from everything else, his voice is 
awful. Right? It's bad. Okay, so... And by the way, I'm Ray Romano of Kermit the Frog. I'm fully aware of my voice, I was like. But still, anyway. Sorry, go ahead, Clay. So they have this... Because you have to get both sides. Yeah. And what does Clay Travis do? He just derails the conversation talking about... Boobs. Boobs. Of all things. Right? To the point where Brooke Baldwin just pulls the plug on the whole segment... Even though Brooke was still willing to have a constructive uh, conversation, and so was Keith. But the troll gets all the attention. He gets the plug pulled on everyone. So yesterday, I was on CBC News, CBC News Network up here in Canada talking about all this stuff. Uh-huh. And I was talking to the Chase producer early in the day. And he told me, <laughs> he told me I was going to be on with uh, Lindsey Gibbs from uh, Think Progress. Okay. <laughs> so as he's interviewing me. And he's thinking like a TV producer. You got to have different sides because yeah. if you get this crossfire going, it's great TV. And he's good. talking to me, yeah. and he's saying, "Yeah, it'll be great if you can get some differing viewpoints." And I thought to myself, "Poor guy. Like, if he thinks I'm going to get on TV and disagree with Lindsey Gibbs about Donald Trump, <laughs> it's not going to happen." But it was a much more productive conversation than it would have had yeah. than we would have had if you got someone whose only job is to be contrarian. Because the thing is, if one side of the argument is that racism sucks. Yeah. You can find all kinds of people who are willing to argue the other side that racism is good. Yeah. But is that going to be a, conduct- a productive conversation? Can you get someone who's arguing that in good faith from a position of intellectual honesty? No, not at all. So, like, the idea that you have to balance that, because certain things just make sense. If we're talking about gravity, you cannot have someone come in here and say, well, wait a minute, we got to hear the other side. I don't think gravity hey, exists. Hey, Kyrie's pretty sure it's a flat earth <laughs> well, right, right now. And all his teammates are Jalen Brown. Whoa, he's got compelling arguments. Well, right. And so, but this is what the New York Times has done now, right? Is like. Well, Brett Stevens on the editorial page is a climate This denier. is what I'm saying. And so, and the thing is, there are people in the New York Times, like, uh, what's their climate reporter's name? Uh, Gillis. Yeah. Who does. Phenomenal work. As a reporter, as yeah. a journalist. Yeah. Only to have... pages are terrible. Yeah, only to All have... All pages are terrible. Oh, my goodness. All. And so, the New York Times, and, and, and the other problem is, and this is this is a response I have to people that keep telling me is, you know, it's, it's, it's my responsibility to, like, meet people halfway on their opinions. I'm like, listen, if your opinion doesn't make sense... It's not my job to meet you halfway. Well, meet me halfway on race. But listen, if you're a neo-Nazi and your position is that Jews and blacks and all these other people literally should die, where's halfway on that? That I should just live till 50? There's no halfway, right? If you're a climate change denier, I can't meet you halfway. Because if I meet you halfway, guess what? I'm smart. You're an idiot. I meet you halfway. Some total is... Still one idiot. You got half an idiot on one side, half an idiot on the other side. We haven't done anything, right? So, yeah, all this false balance has to go. Like when I write about Donald Trump in the sports world at the Toronto Star, I don't pretend that he's not racist. I don't pretend that he's not a climate change denier. He's those things. And if if I don't use those facts as context, I'm not doing my job. So a couple more things from the weekend. Number one was Cam Newton. And, and black athletes in general who, while well, both sides do. Yeah. <laughs> Cam Newton. I, I watched, I still don't know oh, what no. he was saying. What's that? Ask me the question, because I, I just don't know what Cam Newton was trying to say. Well. I don't know what he, I listened to all two minutes of it, and I still, I was not any clearer on his position at the end 
than I was at the beginning. I think his position is get them checks, which is a fine position. I enjoy checks. I don't want to get fired. I, I totally get that. I don't know. Maybe if he was not didn't have a visible job, maybe he'd be very militant. I don't actually know. Remember we talked about... But is it his responsibility to be out there because he happens to be black and a superstar athlete? No, well, no, we, well, because everyone, listen, everyone's free to think whatever they want to think. Sure, yeah. Um, and take whatever the approach they want to take um, to any of these issues. With Cam Newton, though, I, I doubt, I, I have questions about his sincerity when he tries to play the middle. Yes, I agree. Um, so if he, uh, if he actually really felt that in his heart, I could see it. I, I just don't get the impression that he feels that in his heart. Um, Cam Newton Cam Newton is like, he's the opposite of NASCAR. Where NASCAR is saying, hey, you know what? Many of our fans, our base of fans, our original fans are in, are in the South. A lot of them are rural. A lot of them are super conservative and maybe racist. Certainly don't want to see this. Certainly don't want to see protests. So we're just going to pander to them. And if it loses us fans in Massachusetts and California... Um, so be it. They're doing it with conviction. It's very wrong, but they're, whatever they're right. doing, they're going for it. Cam Newton is the opposite. So Cam Newton, uh, remember the 2015 season was the year he really hit the scene and he, he was dabbing. And I remember he would give these uh, post-game interviews and he would, he would talk. This is how like Cam Newton, even in a league that had a lot of black quarterbacks, he kind of emerged as black America's quarterback, and he yeah. would talk to black fans. And, and he's going up against Peyton in the Super Bowl. Yeah, but even when, like, he, I remember this one interview where, post game news conference, and he said, you know, we're, we're we're slow cooking like collard greens, and you can smell it a mile away, stuff like that. Like, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, and like African American fans are going to get that reference yeah, immediately yeah, yeah, yeah. because I think I wrote in the Star this would be like. Uh, like the weekend, if he won a Grammy, and he's like, "Hey, man, I'm going out for a double double and some poutine after, right?" Americans would kind of get it, but the Canadian fans would be like, "Yes, that's my man." Um, but he took so much flack that that season. That um, remember, he hired this image consultant at the behest of the team owner, and this was the Jerry same image. One of the worst. Yeah, and this was the same. There's a statue of Jerry Richardson at the stadium. Of course, there is. he's a living person. <laughs> he's never played football. But, so, but Cam Newton hires this image consultant, this conservative image consultant, the same one that used to work with all these Republican politicians, right? So Cam Newton has now tried to remake himself as more palatable, uh, less divisive. But his, his problem is that he's alienated all the people that loved the, the collard greens reference and the dabbing in the first place without winning over all the people that we're going to hate him no matter what. And here's the thing about Cam Newton. Like, the, the, people that, the people that hate you because you're black are going to hate you because you're black. And it doesn't matter how you act. Um, and whether or not you are actually a good or a bad person is immaterial to any of this. Now, if you actually are a bad person, it gives a lot of people, like, a smokescreen to talk about you, to talk badly about you. But if you're – if you – um, again, we're the Rhodes Scholar, but they just already decided they didn't like you because you're black. And then, then that's what and that's what's going to happen. So Cam Newton's over here, desperately trying to win over these people that hated him before, um, and that's never going to happen. But at the same time, he has uh, like support for him, you know, amongst a lot of his original fans, especially outside of Charlotte, like people that 
Like, if you're in Charlotte, he's the team's quarterback, you're going to cheer for him. But, like, if you're outside of Charlotte, you have no special reason to cheer for the Panthers, but you liked Cam. You know, he's he's alienated a lot of those fans without winning over the ones he's trying to reach. So, good luck to you, Cam. Well, and the Cam thing, it wasn't that he was waving around Malcolm X's no. words. He was talking about collard greens, which is lovely. It's your personality. If you were from, again, as you said, the poutine thing, that would be delightful. We would, Oh, I get that. Yeah. Yeah, like... Because and that's not a signal. militant at all. It's fun. Fun yes. is good. Everybody should like fun. Whatever yes. color you are, fun's great. Well, exactly. But again, and we've dealt with this in in the NFL and in lots of pro sports. Like baseball deals with it all yeah, the time. Yeah, backflips like, and all this. Certain guys are allowed to have fun. Yeah. And then other guys have to be grateful just to be there, right? I, was, I saw a headline this morning. I haven't read the story yet. I think it's in the New Yorker where it's uh, the writer saying like, "Ungrateful is the new uppity." Yeah, it's a New Yorker piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's so, a great piece too. Yes, yeah, so if you want to tell a black athlete or a Latino athlete that they are out of line, you call them ungrateful because if you call them uppity now, people have caught on to the racial connotations of that word. Whereas yeah. ungrateful still sounds racially neutral, even though it isn't in the way it's applied. Because no one ever told like when Brett Boone used to flip bats, no one ever said, "Hey, buddy, just be happy you're here. Just thank the Seattle Mariners they gave you a job, pal." Okay. Go thank your parents. Be grateful to your parents for giving you the jeans. Right. Um, and that was perfect segue because I was going to go to baseball. So the first baseball player finally got in on it, Bruce Maxwell. Yes. A fringe catcher for the Oakland Athletics who's white, got in on it. I don't think he's white. What is he, mixed race? Uh, yeah, he he definitely has some melanin okay. in him because his uh, – his dad. What is he? That his, he was born in Germany. His dad was in the military. His mom, I think, is German. You know, like you see a lot of those, like Jermaine Jones on the U.S. national soccer team. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. It's a couple guys like that. You see a lot of like uh, half American, half German people. Like for you guys that don't know me personally, like in another life, I played a little college football. Yes, um, which we're gonna try to get to, but we have to do. We'll see how it goes. The star, the star player on that team, Darnell Autry. Was born in Germany on a military base. His yeah. dad was in the army. His mom's from Germany, and then they wound up moving back over uh, to the U.S. and he grew up in Arizona. But yeah, so I think if we're categorizing Maxwell, like that's where he comes from. He wasn't Dexter Fowler. He wasn't a right. visible black player. So, like he's a guy before 1947. They wouldn't let him in Major League Baseball. He's he's dark enough for that. Yeah, unless Which I would, guess it's a pretty good barometer now that you think. Unless I mean, having just visited the Negro Leagues Museum and yeah. this tapestry of people were discriminated against. Unless he was able to come up with some really good story about Spanish heritage or something like that. Like yeah. on the real, like Jose Bautista wouldn't have got into the major leagues no. in the forties. No, he would have to. He would have to have a really good story about being Spanish. It would have been tough for him. Yeah. But um, yes, Maxwell. So Maxwell. So he decides to do it. And uh, some people, Craig Calcaterra wrote this, or a couple people who said, okay, this is, what we're, this is how we're going to deal with baseball. Baseball's culture is not the NFL, certainly not the NBA. The NBA, totally. We haven't even touched the NBA, which yeah. is, but they've been out there for a while. Uh, do you think that this is going to be limited in baseball? Do you think that this is, I mean, because the thing about baseball that strikes me is the most limited non-white segment of baseball is not American-born African-Americans. It isn't. It's mm-hmm. Latin players. And it's almost like you can sort of get away with this really subtle discrimination against Latin players because, ah, they don't speak the language and they're other or whatever. Yeah, and, also, and it comes back to this issue of gratefulness, right? 
yeah. when Latino players agitate too loudly for equal treatment, yeah. then it comes back to, hey, wait a minute, you didn't even grow up here. We gave you this opportunity to get out of the sugarcane field. How dare you? Um, baseball, yeah, well, it's tougher with baseball just because the, the, the culture is so much more conservative. Like, you'll hear, you'll hear you know, more country music in a baseball locker room than any other mainstream pro sports locker room. Well, you can't flip your bat. You can spike a football. You can't flip your football. Well, it, well no. You can, but... Depending on who you are, you yeah, can flip a bat, right? right? Um, but the unwritten rules and all this stuff, like the, yeah. decor, the obsession with decorum and all this stuff, is that doesn't exist in other sports. No, and it didn't always exist in baseball. This is recent. You know, this is like the last... You go... I was talking about this the other day. I'm trying to remember where. Uh, we go look at uh, when Kirk Gibson hit that home run. Oh, yeah. In the World Series. He ran around the bases pumping his fist. Nobody lost their mind like they did with Jose Bautista. Like, uh, another, another... Jimmy Pearsall ran around the bases backwards when he hit his 100th home run. Yeah. White there, player a long time ago. There was another, um, this guy? another famous 80s home run, uh, Lawless. Oh, Lawless walked three-quarters of the way to first base and then javelin. Right. I mean, like, really? So there was a time, and this is the thing, is that we always assume that the way things are is the way they've always been, but no. no. Like, even... Yeah, like so. Baseball. We had Ricky Henderson. So white no. American <laughs> baseball. Yeah, it's, it's white American Anglo baseball culture that has become super conservative. And I wouldn't even conservative and this obsession with decorum. Yeah, those are euphemisms that the people perpetrating this culture and perpetuating it and promoting it that these guys come up with because they don't want to face how fragile they are. Yeah, because when I hear. When I hear these guys rail against people being shown up, like this obsession with being shown up, yeah. you're showing me up, you're disrespecting me. It just sounds to me like you're fragile, like the guy got the better of you on a play and you can't take it, and so now you're going to throw a, a, a temper tantrum because your fragile baby feelings can't take it. Like, why don't you just toughen up, right? Like, um, and it's amazing, but it's like when Bryce Harper said it, people started listening. Because yeah. Bryce Harper says, hey, man, if he strikes me out and he wants to celebrate, that's fine because he got me. Yeah, yeah. And if I hit a home run off of him and I want to celebrate, that's fine because I got him. Like, guys, you're in – and I get it because at that level of sport, especially if you're a fringe player, you don't, you might not have job security. You might feel insecure because at any moment you can get sent to the minors or whatever. But still, it's, it just all feels like fragility to me instead of uh, – actual an actual concern with respect but in terms of baseball so this you have this sport that's like has this really conservative white american anglo culture and a sport that doesn't have a critical mass of african-american players the way uh major league or sorry the nfl and the nba do um so in terms of like really seeing protests spread in major league baseball It'll be tough. Like, look at all the heat Adam Jones took last year for saying that this sport really feels like a white man's game. Um, Which, demographically, it is. Well, it's right. incontrovertibly true. Well, right. And then look at how Adam Jones is treated. Like, Adam Jones goes to different ballparks and is sometimes subjected to racial, racial slurs. And when he says something about it, you have all these white players saying, well, not white players, but white commenters saying, well, prove it. I don't believe you. What incentive does he have to make anything up? It's insane. Right? And he's never been anything but a... Damn good player. Yeah. And so what it, he doesn't need – he can get attention just with his performance. He doesn't need attention. If he says this is happening, this is happening. And so 
if black players in Major League Baseball start walking out there with one black gloved fist, um, I really don't know how their white American teammates would perceive it, especially as a group. Like, individual by individual is something different. But it is interesting that happened in Oakland. Yes. Right? Well, and the Raiders the same day were yeah, well, and then, out there. And the, the Athletics issued the statement in support of um, Maxwell. Yeah. Right? Because Oakland... Warriors or- listen, before, before, before every sport in the U.S. sacrificed its future at the altar of football, yeah. Oakland was a hotbed of was like a black baseball hotbed. Yeah. All the players that came out of Oakland, whether it was Ricky, uh, like all the 80s favorites, like Claude L. Washington, guys like that. Like, um, played for the A's. Frank Robinson, I think, was among the first or the first black major leaguer who did not come through the Negro League system. Yeah. And like, so like if you go to, go to Baseball Reference and click on like McClyman's High School in Oakland, all kinds of, I don't know what was in the water there. All these guys, even MC Hammer went there. Yeah, right? and he was a big baseball guy. He was. But That's if you look what? at, but who's coming out of there now? It's like football players. Um, but base, but Oakland has this really strong tradition of black baseball. Like Dusty Baker is from that. I don't know if he's from Oakland proper, but I know he's yeah. from the Bay Area, right? And so it's not. It's not really out of character for the A's to support this guy instead of the A's coming down on the side of all these, you know, fragile conservative guys who. Pretend they're being manly, but instead are just super fragile. All right. We're gonna, there, we could go for a lot longer, but I, <laughs> there are some other things I want to get to because your background is very interesting. And I want to talk a little bit about, about Northwestern. Mm. I mean, I could just flat out ask you what's it like to be a varsity athlete in the Big Ten, and that would be a great conversation, <laughs> but that's fine because uh, I was not a good athlete. But um, I want to ask you about the fact that Northwestern, after you, decided to try to form a union. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. We're talking about the intersection of sports and politics and so forth. Did you feel that undercurrent at all at Northwestern in particular when you were there? Did it seem to you like an agitating kind of sports culture as a mainstream football program went? Um, good question. It was, it was a little bit different. There's two... Two issues at work. You're one, how old? One. I don't know. You know that. This spring yeah. at Northwestern yeah. is going to be a big celebration for the 50th anniversary of the May 3rd, 4th agreement. Yes. Oh, you're smart. You're okay. You know, you know the. Tell Yes. So the May 3rd, 4th agreement. So basically what happens is uh, May 3rd and 4th of 1968, a, a, a bunch of black students took over the bursar's office at Northwestern University and just went and sat in the bursar's office, spent a couple of days in there, shut the place down. Very 1968 thing to do. Yes. Um, and demanded, among other things, increased African-American enrollment, an African-American studies program, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but involved in these protests were varsity athletes because at that time especially, when I went to Northwestern, it was probably about anywhere between 8 and 11% black just depending on what the incoming freshman class looked like. But back then, it was even fewer. Uh, you know, and a significant number of the black students on campus 
were varsity athletes, football players, basketball players. I think they had a track team back then. Um, so, and if you go back and read some of the stories, you'll, like, they quoted, okay, it's going to be a bit of a detour. Do you remember, did you ever see the 30 for 30 on uh, the ABA team, the St. Louis Stars? Spirits. St. Louis Spirits. St. Louis. Spirits. Spirits. Paul Costas, where he got his start. Yes. Did you see that? I did. And Terry Pluto's book, Loose Balls, is great, too. I, okay. I'm, I'm fascinated by So, hold on. Yeah. So, when you watch that movie, remember the guy Bad with... Bad News Barnes. No, not Bad News Barnes, but best. the guy with, like, the, the big dude with the crazy male pattern fro. Because he's the first guy you're going to notice because he looks more 70s than anyone else yeah, on there. Yeah, I mean, I don't Because he's got a big afro. Like, he's clearly male pattern bald, but he's got this big afro. Yeah, it's not Artist Gilmore, anyway. Uh, he oh, went to Northwestern. Oh, okay. And he was there during the protests. And so they quoted him. He's like, look, I'm not protesting as an athlete. I'm protesting as a black person because when I'm not playing sports, I'm still a black man on this campus, right? And then there were other guys like on the football team who were going back and forth between practice um, (laughs) and the protests. So there's that. Now, when I was in school, you know, this is like 20 plus years ago now, right? Like my freshman year was 1995. Um, And it was that era that college sports, college football and basketball in general, and then like our campus in particular, were transitioning from what they were then to what they are now. Um, so it wasn't, it was big business. You could tell, like you, when we were at games, um, there'd be a, like a stoppage in play. And you'd look and you'd see a guy holding a flag. And he would just stand there holding the flag. And play wouldn't begin until he waved the flag because they're on commercial timeout, Right. And I would talk to my friends who were playing college football in Canada. They'd be like, so what do they do? Just stop the game until the commercial's done? I'm like, that's exactly what they do, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it wasn't as nakedly commercial as it is now. Really? And But it, again, we were transitioning. And the difference, too, is that we were Northwestern. We weren't Penn State. Yeah, right. So Northwestern was still like a smaller... But if you went to play at the big house, you could see it all around. Yeah, So, but Northwestern was still like a smaller program than the rest of the Big Ten programs. But then after a couple years of success, you know, our program starts becoming more like other programs. Um, Whereas now, like when I would go back and talk to like the people that worked in academic services that were there, that had been there until recently, and then, but were there when we were in school, that's what they would say to me. They would say, this thing is so much more corporate now, you know, but it all changed like with you guys' generation. When I say my generation, I mean like the actual really good players that were a year and a couple years older than me and like a couple years younger than me. Like I personally, I didn't do anything. I played on the scout team. I sat on the bench. But like, you know, people like – the other thing, this was kind of uh, at the dawn. You have to remember too, the NCAA and these various teams are still figuring out the various ways to license all this stuff, mm-hmm. right? So, like, in 1995, if you're playing, uh, like, college football on Sega Genesis, right, if if uh, the people I knew were just happy to be included in the game, and it, yeah. didn't, it didn't occur to people that, hey, they should be paying us, you know, for our likeness in the game, because all this stuff is brand new. Um, whereas now, people rightfully say, hey, wait a minute, you're selling jerseys with my number on it, but not my name. Um, what what really is happening here, right? Uh, and so for Northwestern, yeah, I followed the the Kane Coulter developments like very closely. Mm-hmm. And it's funny you watch you watch the Denver Broncos now, and Trevor Simeon is like mm-hmm. good. 
Yeah, but in college, he was the quarterback of like last resort. Like Kane Coulter, if he twisted his ankle, okay, Simeon, you can get two or three snaps here, but as soon as Coulter's ready to go back in, he goes back in. Um, and so it made perfect sense because this is one of these things that w- it was going to happen somewhere. Yeah, it was absolutely going to happen somewhere after the O'Bannon ruling. Yeah. And Obama did play a while ago. I mean, you, you talked about you weren't that far from when it started. It was not, you know. Yeah, O'Bannon was probably a few years older than I was. Yeah. He was finishing college when I was starting. But he only really thought about it and got militant. Not militant. This is what I'm he saying. He only got Yeah, so like in, in, in that era of college sports, yeah. it was commercial but not like it is now. So people weren't quite. And again, in terms of like licensing your image, yeah. it was just a novelty. Right? He wasn't a plaintiff at 19. He was a plaintiff much later. Yeah, so it takes a few years for people to kind of catch up to the game that the rest of the world is yeah. playing. Um, and the reality is, uh, when you are a varsity athlete, like, that is your full-time job. Like, you schedule your classes around your practices. It's not the other way around. Um, and you, And the difference at Northwestern, too, and this is why you've seen – the school make a big push to get all their athletic facilities right on the lakeshore, right on campus. Mm-hmm. Because the Northwestern, the stadium, the practice fields, the weight room, they were all about a mile off campus, right? And so as I went through school, I started thinking about what was really happening. I, I stopped thinking of college football less as uh, college teams. And I started thinking of them as pro teams that play in a league that don't allow you to pay in cash. So they pay you in scholarships to a university with which they're affiliated. Correct. Because they weren't really, like, the athletic department wasn't really part of the university, no. right? But because this judge ruled that these these players are, are, in fact, employees, now they've made this push to integrate things so that the next generation of guys cannot uh, split that hair and, and move to unionize, get paid, get benefits or whatever. And the other thing is, it's not like the players are asking... Uh, in this drive for unionization, um, for outlandish stuff, right? What do they want? Like long-term medical care for injuries they pick up while playing football, which to me is the least a school can do for someone. Um, and, and schools should not be allowed to just dunk people. Okay, well, you blew out your knee. I'm not going to renew your scholarship. Although most schools now are, are guaranteeing scholarships for four years. But listen, if, if, if I break my ankle playing for you and that's going to bug me for the next 20 years – you owe it to me to help me with those costs. Makes perfect sense. Now, whether or not they are ever able to actually imp- like start a union at yes. Northwestern is something different. But um, you know, the light bulb's on. You know, five, ten years ago, it wasn't on. So originally, when I had texted you, the two things that I wanted to get to were boxing and what had just happened with Jamel Hill. We can still talk about those. We're going to. We're going to do Jamel. How long are your podcasts typically? Typically about an hour. Okay, we're at 55 we're minutes. We're going to go over We can go hour. over. Listen, we're in my office. They know that I'm here. And again, the thing is, too, like, you're like a, a – you, Jonah Carey, are like a living, breathing, get-out-of-jail-free card. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I like, met your deputy sports editor, lovely fellow. Yeah, Josh Rubin. He also writes a lot. He's a, he's really well educated on beer. If you have any beer questions, ask Josh. But like, yeah. So if the boss comes in here, he's like, "Where's Morgan?" They're like, "He's with Jonah Carey." Oh, okay, that's fine. Well, and I'm I, I out myself because I'm dressed like some sort of 
pastel rainbow. They would actually listen. They would actually apologize to you. Do you see what I'm saying? So don't worry about that. We we can go as long as we want. I, I I don't. Think I have any cachet, but if I do, getting to talk. And by the way, you and I don't go out for beers like we should. We that end up is true. only having conversations like this, so we're going to try to remedy that. But anyway, yeah. so Indochino, love these guys. I am a tall weirdo with a weird body, and it's not easy to fit me. And I went into an Indochino showroom, and they fitted me, and I got a suit, and it looks dope. It's fantastic. Such an easy process. There's so many things that you could choose too. You want can. Totally tailor and do whatever it is that you want to do, like your lapels, your fabrics, anything that you could possibly imagine. They do it all. They're really excellent Indochino. Uh, and look, just in general, a custom suit just fits better than an off-the-rack suit. That's just how it is. Even if you have the most conventional body ever, you get that cinch here. You get the length there. You do what you need to do. It's terrific. As I said, I had a great experience with Indochino. It makes everybody look better, you know? You just look better when you wear a custom suit. And, even better, this week, listeners of the Joe and Carey Podcast get any premium Indochino suit for just $379. Yes, $379. Indochino.com, you enter Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price, crazy, for a made-to-measure premium suit plus free shipping. Indochino.com, I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code Jonah, any premium suit, $379 and free shipping, an incredible deal for a suit that will fit you better than anything that an off-the-rack off the rack suit ever could. Thank you, Indochino, for sponsoring the podcast. There are a lot of ways that the Jamal question could be asked. I used to work for ESPN. Yes. They would send us these emails yes. that said, don't say anything about anything all the time. <laughs> you can be terminated if you do. Jamel knows. I knew. People in the cafeteria. Everybody knows. Simmons knew. Whitlock knew. Everybody knows. So when you say something, whatever it is, in whatever platform, maybe in a bar, yeah. you still run the risk of getting terminated. That is legally allowed, according to U.S. law, that you're an at-will employee, whatever, yeah. and we can do whatever we want to do. So I'm not denying that. Jamel could say things that are obviously right, and ESPN can reprimand her, fire her, whatever they want to do. What I want to know is, in your mind, what is the most expedient thing for ESPN to do in a situation like that? What benefits ESPN the most? Because Jamel's right. We, we yeah, know well, it's hard to talk about that in the present tense because they bungled it so I guess so. So what should time. they have done? All they had to do was say, we stand by our reporter. Mm-hmm. Period. That's it. That's it. Because the reporter's telling the truth. She's sorry, and... Not our employee. Employee. That's it. Because if this person is telling the truth, then they're fine. Um, And ESPN, in trying to crack down on Jamel Hill and and in trying to seek like this middle ground, Mm -hmm. wound up pulling the Cam Newton. All the people that liked ESPN and liked the fact that they put Jamel Hill and Michael Smith. Um, in this prime real estate and did something different with Sports Center that yeah. you know that hadn't been done since Stuart Scott revolutionized Sports Center. Yeah. Um, you're alienating all of them. And then the 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 conservative trolls who were really agitating for Jamel to be disciplined and who might not be fans of ESPN in the first place. Like why are you why are you 
hanging your employee out to dry to please people who aren't even really faithful customers of yours. They so. don't they object to the six existing. Yeah. If they only did basketball highlights, Steph Curry scored twenty five yeah. points and they read it like that every show, they would hate that show. Yeah, it doesn't matter. No. And so you're never gonna please them. And those people they're not your constituency anyway. They're coming from outside of your community uh to tell you what to do with Jamel Hill. And whether or not Jamel is working or not working still doesn't change their life. They just like the ego stroke of being able to say we forced ESPN yep. uh, to do something. So all ESPN had to do in that instance is say uh, we support Jamel Hill's First Amendment rights. We stand by behind her. She's a part. Of, she's a valued part of our team. That's it. And then this whole thing, like people, those same people will make noise, but it would die out. But by trying to bend to what these guys are complaining about and trying to, to placate them, it gives this whole story more life and more energy to the point where now Donald Trump is saying, well, they should fire Jamel or, or uh, Huckabee Sanders is saying it's a fireable offense. Whereas if they had just stood behind her, um, I, don't, I don't know how far it gets. I don't even know that it gets to the president's office. Like, how often does Donald Trump get called a white supremacist? Like, very often. If he hasn't, like... No, David Remnick, there are writers out there writing these things. Yeah, like, writers, remember the... Reputable remember the magazine cover with yeah. Donald Trump blowing in the sails and the sail is at Ku Klux Klan hood? Right. So he... Listen, Donald Trump is used to this. He's a black sports commentator on ESPN. Well, right. And, and a woman, by the way. Yes. Like, don't, don't discount that. All yeah. of the above, right? Oh, yeah, because yeah, Donald Trump, in addition to being a white supremacist, is also a misogynist, yeah. as Miss Texas these told us. tracks tend to go hand in hand. <laughs> exactly. and murderers are often domestic abusers, and it, it ain't a coincidence. No. This shit is a coincidence. And so, um, to me, it was a, a big missed opportunity on ESPN's part. Um, and the second thing, like when you would see these memos in the ESPN bosses reminding ESPN employees that... This is a sports shop and what we concentrate on in sports. So many of these emails. So many. It's, but none of it's true. What does the E and ESPN stand for? Yeah, entertainment. Entertainment. So right there you've told us that it's not all sports because you're trying to entertain. Second of all, the ESPN has a vertical called the Undefeated that our man Jason Whitlock mm. founded and got he got fired from his own company, which is – that takes skill <laughs> – <laughs> but um, oh, but the point is, anyway. that's not a purely sports site, and it was never founded either under Jason Whitlock or under Kevin Merida, who runs it now, yeah. to be a place where you only discuss sports. There's all kinds of political and pop culture elements. That's what makes that site interesting. Neither was Grantland, by the way. I mean, the, right. And not that Grantland was as far, but... I mean, yes, of, it, of course. So they understand at some level that yeah. this thing is not only about sports. So ESP, ESPN had a special um, discussing the N-word and how people should or shouldn't use the word, who's entitled to use it, who isn't, blah, blah, blah. Um, and there's no L in ESPN for linguistics, but you had a whole show about linguistics and the political and social and racial baggage around the N-word. And so you can't now say, oh, no, we're only about sports because, hey, man, that, that, what's, the, what's the saying country people use? That horse left the barn. <laughs> you know, I haven't had any, like, I didn't grow up on a farm, but that, hey, that, that horse left the farm, man. The horse, sorry, horse left the barn. 
Um, I want to ask you about boxing a little bit. That's, oh, I love to talk about boxing. I know you do, and I don't like boxing, but I like talking about boxing. Really? I'm not a combat sports guy. Okay. I just never got into it. Um, for whatever reason, I, I know that I like a proper song. I've seen Hagler Hearns. Yeah. That's all you need to see, because that's, that's eight, eight minutes of, of, of concentrated action, right? It's concentrated action. But, it's, but the thing is, it's not that I dislike boxing because of the of the, uh, of the boredom of it. Then I wouldn't like baseball. Well, exactly. <laughs> I'm not denigrating baseball. I love you, baseball. Please, sorry. Please take me back. No, but, Play the um, game the right way, Carrie. Don't disrespect <laughs> the game. No, it, it's I just I I can't do the violence, and that's just me. It's just that's how, I'm, and I don't yep. watch much football either. Fine, doesn't matter. Everybody has their own proclivities. But um, aside from my own proclivities, I want to start with Mayweather, Mayweather and McGregor. And there's a couple ways I want to go, but one way is: Have we reached a point in boxing where we need to have that other thing in order to draw people? And we can we not just have two really good fighters go at each other? Does it need to be MMA crossover, battle of the this and battle of the that? In order to reach the mainstream, I guess. All that depends on, one, which country you're in. Yes, that's a big factor. And two, uh, how susceptible your intended audience is to, like, tall tales and cooked up storylines. Yeah. And WWE-style promotional gimmicks. So... Do you need an MMA fighter to fight a boxer to make people watch boxing in England? No. In April, Anthony Joshua fought Vladimir Klitschko. 90,000 people in that stadium. Wow! To watch a heavyweight title fight. Anthony Joshua is fighting again at the end of this month in Cardiff, Wales. They've already sold 70,000 tickets to this fight. And he's fighting Kubrat Pulev. Do you know who Kubrat Pulev is? No. Exactly. He doesn't have fans. 70,000 people there to go watch Anthony Joshua, right? You get Anthony Joshua against an American in England, you'll get more. Um, you get Anthony Joshua against an American in the U.S., it won't struggle. It just wouldn't be the same scale of event. And I listen, Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather wouldn't sell 90,000 tickets almost anywhere. Yeah. Um, so I say that to say this. Boxing isn't as dead as people think it is. Mm -hmm. Like the mainstream media keep telling us boxing is dead, but there's all this evidence that boxing isn't dead. So Mexico, my God. Well exactly. Huge. Well and this is huge. This is uh I, I rail against this point all the time. Yeah. Because people try to tell me, well boxing's a niche sport. Okay, fine it is. But it's a big niche. Um, it's only popular among Latin Americans. I'm like, yeah, but there's a lot of you people in Latin, Latin America. And a lot of Latin Americans yeah. living in the United States. Yeah. Why do you think uh, Univision and Telemundo and Deportes, they all exist because there's a market. So you can't, you can't on the one hand say, well, this sport is diminishing because only Latin Americans like it. But every time you re-up your cable package, there's more Spanish language channels there because that is a big market. Telemundo it, is impossibly huge. Yeah. Impossibly huge. So you, you ignore the, those demographics like at your peril. Um, and then Mayweather, Mayweather... McGregor, yeah. or as we've been calling Maygregor, the fact that it was a crossover novelty of novelty circus fight was part of its appeal, and the other part of the, its appeal was the two people that were actually in the fight. Yes. Um, so you can't take any two boxers and MMA guys and make it that big of an event. No, GSP doesn't have that. Yeah, so like GSP versus Andre Ward. 
And Andre Ward may be the greatest fighter of his generation, but it doesn't matter. For this purpose, it wouldn't work. Yes. Because what you had was... First of all, yeah. Getting out, by the way. Pardon me? Good for him for... Yeah, well, because we'll... Yes, because... Especially in the main... Well, boxing media, too. Boxing fans. We have this love-hate relationship with, with fighters who retire with money in their brains. Yeah. So every time a guy fights too long, we tell him. So a guy fights till 35, and we say, oh, you should have retired at 30. And then when a guy retires at 30, they say, what are you doing? You can fight till you're 35. <laughs> Andre Ward knows what he's doing. He knows how hard he's worked. Yeah. This guy has never lost a fight from 12 years old till now. Legend. So... He's earned it, no matter what you think. But the thing about May Gregor is, it wasn't just that it was a boxer versus an MMA guy. It was, it was Floyd Mayweather versus an MMA guy, not just an MMA guy, a white MMA guy. And we're, we aren't being honest with ourselves if we don't talk about how Conor McGregor fit into this great white hope archetype. Um, and had otherwise intelligent people thinking that he actually had a chance to beat a professional boxer. <laughs> But that is a huge part of it. Now, when they promoted that fight, they used race until Charlottesville, basically. So they were happy to yeah. have racial barbs going back and forth yeah. until Charlottesville happened. Then it, that stuff wasn't funny anymore. And then You're you right. saw—I I didn't even think yeah. about that, but yeah, that tracks. Yeah. Then you saw both those fighters, you know, back away from anything racial. Yeah, that right? just went to the misogyny. Pardon me. <laughs> then they just went to the misogyny. They, they, yeah, well, they just stuck with it. You yeah. know, stuck with the misogyny. Yeah. But. Um, that fight, because it was a spectacle, but, you know, it got this shot to pay attention. Like, if, like, I was at that fight on the company's expense, mm. um, and I don't know that there's another fight on the calendar that would have got this company to open up their checkbook and say, hey, go cover it. Even though, like, the fight that, that just passed a week and a half ago, uh, Alvarez and um, Golovkin, mm-hmm. much more competitive fight, obviously, and if you're talking about the sport, there's a lot more merit to that fight than there is to a boxer beating 100%. up on a mixed martial arts guy, right? But it's not the fight necessarily that sells to mainstream audiences. Um, but that doesn't mean that boxing necessarily needs those fights to survive. Because the other thing that's happening is like Conor McGregor is one, but you see all these MMA guys now getting boxing licenses. So if boxing is a fight that needs the crossover fights to survive... Why aren't boxers stepping into MMA in big Correct. numbers? They're not. And again, this is this is one of the things that ties a lot of these co- topics of conversation in this conversation together is like people's um, insensitivity to facts, right? And people come up with these ideas. Doesn't matter what the facts say. I'm going to think something else, and I'm going to proceed on this track, even though these facts tell me something else. So this boxing is dead storyline will not die, even though the facts say something else. Because the facts say it was 90,000 people uh, at that fight in England. It's going to be 70,000 more um, in October. For some dude. For Anthony Joshua, who's a very big deal against Kubrat Pulev. In Kubrat Pulev's home country, I'm sure he's a big deal. (laughs) But all these people in Wales are not coming to see Kubrat Pulev. They're coming to see one guy. So guys doing 70,000 tickets with no marketable b-side that yeah. tells me there's a lot of interest in the sport and what this guy's doing and now you also have all these mma guys coming to boxing to try to get paid if boxing was the dead sport and mma was the vibrant sport the boxing guys would be going to mma like when i made this point might have been on our boxing podcast with Corey erdman 
Um, you see track and field guys, Marquise Goodwin, uh, Marvin Bracey, even Tyreek Hill was a track and field guy early in college, but they go to football because there's more money in football. It doesn't matter how good you are in track and field. You can be a marginal NFL guy. They're going to pay you because you're fast and you're going to make more money in one season in the NFL than you'll make in three years on the circuit unless you have a really good shoe deal. So which of these sports is struggling financially and which, one, which of them is still spinning off money? Ronaldo so if, Nehemiah. Yes. Well, exactly. So if boxing was dead... And if boxing was the sport that needed the crossover fights, yep. all these boxers would be signing up for the crossover fights. But it's the MMA guys that are signing up for the crossover fights. I know a couple guys that own gyms out here, and they were saying after the McGregor fight, like people were just dragging their kids to the gym because they think because they saw the thirty million dollars for the guy that lost, oh, yeah. right, and the hundred plus million, and this is just guaranteed for the guy that won. So all these people have dollar signs in their eyes, not realizing uh, it's never quite that simple. Yeah. But again, it's. That fight, in terms of uh, captivating the general public, had, like, everything you need. Because it wasn't just, like, Mayweather's been the bad guy since 2007. That's the persona he's adopted. Uh, McGregor is, like, another anti-hero. So instead of having heel versus hero, you had heel versus heel. And that's fascinating. Remember watching Scaramucci fight versus Reigns previous? You can take your eyes off of it, right? <laughs> it's the same thing. And the fact that... Uh, now, the, fa- the, the fact that Mayweather, like, actually is uh, a woman-beating ogre, again, I don't know that that actually changes how, like, I don't know that that actually changes the dynamic he was trading on when he decided to become a heel. Because mm-hmm. the people that hated him because he's an outspoken black guy hate him because he's an outspoken black guy. He, he could go build a hospital right next door to the same people that hate him. They're still going to hate him because he's an outspoken black guy. So, like, his actual character has very little... That's just incidental to this. And then McGregor, you know, because he's that great white hope... And the thing about boxing, uh, you put this fight together the right way, once a generation, you can fool all kinds of people. Jerry Cooney. And Jerry Cooney. Uh, uh, Jim Jeffries versus Jack Johnson. Like, Jim Jeffries was a betting favorite going into that fight. Like, he was, like, I think he was, like, at home on the alfalfa farm. He was up to 300 pounds. Speaking of not paying attention to facts. Right. But, like, once a generation, you get the right pieces together. And as uh, Corey was saying on our boxing podcast, like, it's not a coincidence that these big almost, they're almost scams is what these fights are. Yeah, that one. But, not Canelo Triple G, but that no, one. No, exactly. No, because the scam fights always in, involve a white a, a white guy, either Irish or Irish-American, because people just believe in the idea yeah. that this guy from Ireland, because of his Irishness, can, can be like an actual experienced uh. boxer, right? <laughs> and like, it doesn't matter if he's from Ireland, like, he still has to know how to fight. It's weird, because, like, and it's, it's almost like the great white hope idea almost works better if the person actually is limited. You see what I'm saying? Like, Barry McGuigan, well, he's from Northern Ireland, but he never got this famous. And Barry McGuigan beat Pedrosa, and if you're in the boxing, like, that was a big deal, right? Steve Collins never got this kind of push, and Steve Collins beat Chris Eubank. Like, that's, that was a big deal. Yet here comes Conor McGregor, and you have all these people saying, yeah, of course he can. No, guys, he can't win. Like, and if you didn't let, if you didn't let your, uh, your love for these archetypes that border on stereotype blind you, like, it's all right there. When people ask me about the fight, like the actual fight leading into the fight, who do you think is going to win, Morgan? 
Conor McGregor has lots of crazy skills. And I would say, look, man, it's very simple. It's a boxing match. Keep in mind that it's a boxing match. You'll have your answer. The guy that knows how to box is going to win the boxing match. Like, you can come from cricket to baseball, and there'd be things you'd do really well in yeah. baseball because you, because you played cricket. You'd make barehanded catches and stuff. Like, they'd never be able to throw a ball in the dirt. You'd be able to hit it. They're all about McGraw. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. But over the course of a game or a season, your limitations are just going to be exposed because there's things that you haven't, you're not used to doing. You can't hit a ball behind you and still get credit. <laughs> right. right? It's, and you don't, get, you don't score runs for hitting, like, a ground rule double. Say, hey, I hit it out of the park. That should be six runs. Buddy, it's one run. Mm-hmm. So as long as you kept in mind that it was a boxing match, it was very easy to analyze. But people just kept letting other stuff distract them. The trash talk, the idea, <laughs> this is, the idea that this guy could come and have these crazy ideas, uh, these, these techniques that no one's ever seen before. But like, if you've been boxing your whole life, you've seen everything. Um, but again, as long as people kept in mind that it was a boxing match, it's a very simple fight to analyze. But because of these factors we just laid out, people had a hard time keeping that in mind. But I don't know that boxing, boxing needs more of these. Mixed martial arts could use a few more, especially if the MMA guy wins. Because then their entire sport's validated. Yeah. And that was part of, like, when I talked to boxing purists versus MMA dudes about how they each viewed this fight going in, the, the MMA guys had a lot more invested in it because they needed their guy to win to prove to everyone that their sport is legitimate. Whereas the boxing guys are like, I know how to box. It doesn't matter. Because <laughs> everything he does, even when he punches people in the UFC, it's all set up and enhanced by the fact that he's also allowed to kick and elbow and tackle and all this stuff. But, like, if all you can do is punch people and I start punching me and you can't, you can't tackle me to make me stop, well, then and this is what happened. You had a fight where for three rounds Mayweather did nothing. Fourth round Mayweather started punching. And from the moment Mayweather started punching, McGregor looked lost and confused. Like, he couldn't believe this guy was punching him back. Like, that wasn't part of the deal. And so, there it went. Two more quick questions. Yes. So, boxing dying, da, da, da. I think we can establish the narrative is very American-centric. It's yes. Very, all this stuff. I also think that no matter how big a boxing advocate you are, it's pretty acknowledged that judging is not always awesome. And yep. it was not awesome in the Canelo Triple G. Yeah. How hard is that to fix? Can't we just fix this? Um, I'm, I'm asking this as a pure outsider, as somebody who's not a boxing aficionado, but it just it doesn't seem that that should be that hard. Two things. One, boxing judges, uh, they are as subject to having bad days as, as officials are in any other sport. That's so true. So they're going to blow calls. So in this case, uh, Adelaide Bird, it wasn't a good day for her. Um I'm not prepared to say she's corrupt because she's not. And, and here's the problem, too, is that because conspiracy theories are very seductive. So every time there's like an outlier of a scorecard, there's someone who says, oh, this person's been bought off. And then there's other people that don't follow a lot of boxing. This is the first they've heard of this. And it, sound, it sounds like it makes sense to them. Yeah, this person's been bought off. Guys, it's nowhere near as easy as you think to buy judges in a boxing match. And then also, there's three judges in the match. So if you want to buy a result, you got to buy at least two judges. So it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't help you to buy a 118-110 scorecard when that's not going to win you the fight. You need two judges, even with a much, and with a much slimmer scorecard. And if you're trying to buy a fight, you got to buy a reasonable scorecard. 
can't buy a crazy scorecard that's going to raise all these questions. Like that is, you watch The Wire, right? Yes, of course. So you remember when they had the co-op? Yeah. And they're all meeting. Some Charles. And yeah, and Stringer Bell's talking, and then the guy's taking notes. And he's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm taking notes. And Stringer Bell's like, you're taking notes on a criminal fucking conspiracy? <laughs> That's like the 118-110 scorecard. Like, you don't want that kind of attention, right? Can't wait for Jonathan Abrams' book, by the way. On the Wire? Yeah. Okay, what Did is you that? Know? Oh, yeah. He's, it should be done. I think it's out next year. I oh, well, I met the real-life uh, Cuddy. Yeah? Fucking well, boxing guy. Well, and he was at the Maygregor fight because he coaches a guy named Gervonta Davis. Okay. So basically, uh, the coach's name is Calvin Ford. Okay. And he runs this gym in Baltimore that was the basis for the gym that they had in season four of The Wire. So Burns and Simon would go, like back in the day, would go hang out with Calvin Ford yeah. to get ideas for these characters in this gym. So like, Cuddy's life was Calvin Ford's life where he really knew boxing was also into crime, got out of jail. It's like, man, I don't want to be a criminal anymore. What else can I do? So he starts running this gym. Um, what were we talking about? Fixing fights? Oh, yes. Okay. So the other problem with... with it doesn't uh, even have to be fixing. It's just... I, no, I, judging. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm not even necessarily assuming corruption. I'm just like, if an umpire gets one call wrong... This is, this is my ignorance. But if you have 12 fights to judge something, let's say that you get some stuff wrong. An umpire doesn't make the wrong call every time, it's one bad call, but if the umpire was viewed on the 50 calls, they'd get 49 right. Yeah. The problem to me is that you've got a body of work and you've decided that this big... It's like you've called so many things wrong in a row. Just as a purely an outsider, that's what baffles me, is that you're not like, split second, was it out or safe? You better tell me right now. It's, yeah. You've had time to deliberate. You've got notes. It's not a criminal enterprise. You could take those notes, but you got it wrong. Yeah. Ba- you know, badly wrong. I would, say, I would take a broader view of the person's career okay so if you say and take each fight as an event yeah so now if the person does 50 fights they might have and this is what we were talking about uh on the boxing podcast because the whole thing was dedicated to conspiracy theories and crazy yeah scores but like if you look at any judge you take 100 scores 100 fights that they've scored probably eight of those fights will involve a scorecard that doesn't really make sense with the other scorecards or, or really match the action. But the fight, the judge, the, the judge that you think is corrupt likely isn't responsible for all eight. They might be responsible for one or two, yeah. which is to say like every judge every now and then okay. has one of these. Um, and also like when, when you get into, when you get into like a fight, cause each fight has its own rhythm and its own patterns. And I think maybe sometimes judges, that's why like the first, round of a fight is tougher to judge than the rest of the rounds mm-hmm. of the fight because they're in, the fighters aren't in their rhythm yet. And so you can see sometimes a judge not judging each round as if it's its own round, but judging each round as it fits within the overall rhythm and pattern of the fight, which might start yielding some different scores. Like when I watched that fight, I thought Triple G won seven rounds and Canelo won five. When I rewatched the fight, I saw that the first round you could easily have given to Canelo. So 6-6, six, six, like a draw. Like, and that's the other thing is that to me, the outcome, the result, this fight being a draw, is not unjust. Hmm. It's that people have beef with the scorecard. Yeah. Because if Adelaide Bird had said this fight is six rounds for each guy, you still have a draw. You have a majority decision yeah. draw. And uh, no one complains because 6-6 six, six is a completely fair Decision. Even seven rounds to five for Alvarez is fair. 
it wasn't the scorecard I had, but I could absolutely see it. So the problem was with the disparity in that scorecard. And the other problem with judging boxing is it was, remember Roy Jones Jr.? Mm-hmm. So 1988 Olympics, they were in Korea. Mm-hmm. And he fights That's a the, great 30 for 30, too. Yeah. So, yeah, so remember he fights. That's the thing. I like boxing discussion. And yeah, but that's, I, but that's the thing. So yeah. people like the idea of boxing and the ideas that boxing brings up. Yeah. And so when you have a great white hope, he speaks to all these ideas. Yeah. Right? So when you have someone you can allegedly call a real-life Rocky, he speaks to these ideas like McGregor does, and that's how you hook people in. And, yeah. the, pe- and the people promoting fights, they know this. And the people promoting this past fight, they knew yeah. it. And that's they knew they were pushing your buttons, man. And they knew McGregor wasn't going to win. Everyone except McGregor knew he wasn't going to win, and his fans. But um, but the problem. So, so you remember that fight? So these judges in Korea they give this fight to Park Si Hun over Roy Jones Jr. Even though Roy Jones Jr. landed way more punches. Yeah. So then for about twenty twenty five years, amateur boxing goes to this point system where you it's just the judge's job to count punches as they land. Um, but the problem with that system was that it was a little bit easier to manipulate than the 10 or 20 point must system. Because I've been to amateur tournaments and watch guys land punches. And if I'm a judge, I can either miss a punch or if I'm a judge that actually is crooked and I just don't feel like giving you a point, then I'm, I just won't press the button. Yeah. And so these are the problems uh, that you run into with overhauling uh, boxing judging. Now, the other thing... You see in some cards is like open scoring so that you get past about the seventh, eighth round. Then they tell you what each judge has. And then if someone has some crazy scorecard, then everyone knows it. Now the judge is accountable. But at the same time, I don't know if you want judges. Um, I don't know if you want judges under pressure from the crowd to call rounds a certain way. Yeah. Like you still have to have judges. But judges do have ears, and it sometimes does influence what they score, but you want to try to control for that. Now, open scoring as a concept, I have no problem with. Mm -hmm. Because some people say, well, if you have open scoring, guys will just stop fighting when they're ahead. I'm like, no, they won't, because they have to keep the lead. You can't just give rounds away. Plus, you don't, like baseball games, everyone knows what the score is. People don't stop trying. right? Or not rally. Or just people don't stop trying after, oh, man, it's five innings in, we're down three to two. I'll I'll just stop. (laughs) There's no more drama. Yeah. Right? Boxing's the only sport where you don't really know the, in MMA, where you don't really know the outcome until the ring announcer says yeah. it. But those are the problems you kind of run into, is that uh, counting punches is very is much more difficult than it seems. It's much more difficult in practice than it seems when you're just discussing it. Uh, and two, um, open scoring, like, while I like the idea, again, you just don't want the judge to feel like they're at the mercy of the crowd and have to score fights in ways that please the crowd. Um, and three, again, like bad scorecards, they just pop up like everywhere, any judge. No one has a perfect record. And then sometimes there are times when you watch a fight live, you think you see it one way, and then you go back and watch it, and it's very different from what you thought mm. you saw the first time. Um, so in terms of changing, I don't quite know how you change it um, you shouldn't maybe you just live with mistakes just like umpires they have replay but umpires can still screw scout so. well exactly yeah. yeah do you have like ball strike replay every time no. right well I believe in robots but anyway right but <laughs> even I can watch the game and see the 
Yeah, I'm over here gesticulating with my hands yeah. like you guys can see. <laughs> the K zone. But, uh, yeah. a box for a motion. Exactly. Yeah. I'm doing like, uh, you know when you watch rugby or Australian rules football and the judge calls for the, the referee calls for the replay and they make that box with their Yes. Hands? That's what I'm doing. <laughs> but you can see that on TV at home. And then uh, you can see which pitches are outside the strike zone, but sometimes they get called strikes. Like, that human error is part of it. And I just don't know that there's a computerized way to score boxing. Um, again, amateur boxing, they tried it, and it was more cumbersome than the must system. So I, I don't know if there's a fantasy easy football fan. Football's no. back. It's fantasy football for everyday fans, and you can get that at FanDuel. That's right, FanDuel. New contest starting every week, no busted seasons. Something for everyone, lots of contests to choose from starting at a buck. Just pick a contest, choose your team, and watch your score real time. More than 2.5 million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. So sign up today. You can go to FanDuel.com. You click the Join Now button and use the promo code Jonah. That's J-O-N-A-H, but you should know that by now, friends. New users get a free entry into the NFL Sunday Million with more than $1 million. $1 million. In cash prizes when you make your first deposit on FanDuel. Just visit FanDuel.com and sign up with the promo code Jonah. Again, that's FanDuel.com. Promo code Jonah. Thank you to FanDuel for sponsoring the podcast. This episode of the Jonah Carey Podcast is with Morgan Campbell. Morgan, terrific. One of the best journalists out there. Just such a polymath. So many different talents. Perfect guy to talk to coming off of this uh, interesting weekend in the world of sports. Take the knee campaign in the NFL. LeBron James, Steph Curry getting involved. A whole bunch of people. Shout out WNBA for being the pioneers of all this stuff. They were out there at the forefront before any of this. And that does not get said enough, frankly. Uh, but yeah, an interesting time to be a sports fan, a sports commentator, and Morgan just with really sharp opinions on all of this. It's, I, I fully defer to him. I, you know, just ask him a couple questions or two, and off he went, and really, really some good thoughts. We also got his other stuff. Uh, he's a big boxing aficionado. We talked about boxing and uh, lots of other uh, compelling topics. I uh, will give a mea culpa, by the way, completely my fault. At one point, we were talking about Bruce Maxwell, the first baseball player to take the knee uh, during the anthem. I refer to him as white. He isn't white. He's African-American. That was a complete uh, mistake, brain fart on my part, which is preposterous because I was naming all these obscure, not relatively obscure boxing things from 30 years ago. I'm not a boxing guy. This baseball thing just happened. I messed it up. So anyway, I, I fall on the sword. I'm sorry for that. Uh, but yeah, I do hope you, that you enjoy this conversation. And we're, we're going to get right to it. Uh, here we go with the next edition of the John Kerry Podcast. It is with Morgan Campbell. Enjoy. All right. So we've covered a lot of good ground. Yes. This has been an excellent conversation. One day it will happen over beers. However, <laughs> one more question, which I do at the end of every podcast, is I always ask the guest for a life tip, a nugget of wisdom, a thing. Oh, sh- and normally with guests... I'm probably not talking, the guy you should be asking, man. Well, and the thing with guests is I often say, hey, like I had Bill James. Like, oh, hey, Bill James, tell me about when you worked at a pork and beans factory in 1975. Tell me about your life story. And, da, da, da. and also we talked about baseball and all this stuff. We spent a lot of time talking about other things because, holy crap, a lot of things are happening yeah. right now. And not really a lot about you. So this is your opportunity. I'm fine with that. Well, and, and I am too. I would, I, you know, people do sometimes ask me, but I'm like more comfortable. Let's talk about Bryce Harper or whatever. Um, but yeah, and it doesn't have to be serious at all. It could be, um, you know, you're a college athlete. You're a, a very, you're an avid track fan. I mean, nobody knows anything about track. You could say, hey, we should all watch more track. Whatever it is that you want to enlighten us with about anything to do with yourself, your existence on this earthly sphere, whatever it is. Maybe you like your turkey sandwiches with uh, radishes on them. I don't know. 
a couple things. One, like for the people that think I'm like talented and stuff, <laughs> I'm. <coughs> if we use the word bum. Yeah. I'm, I'm the bum in my family. <laughs> I have a sister that's a pastry chef. Wow. And she cooks way better than I write and better than I talk. And I have a sister that's an opera singer and she sings better than I write. Holy shit, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's cool. And so, and they would know that I'm the bum of the family. They think I'm like, no, I'm, trust me, I'm the bum of the family. Okay. <laughs> so if you go hear my sister sing, she sings a lot with the, every now and then she'll hook up with the the Chicago Lyric Opera. Wow. She sings a lot with the South Shore Opera Company in Chicago. Wow. So if you hear her sing and look at me, then you'd be like, dude, what are you doing with your life, man? So to be humble, just have great sisters. That's a good one. Something like that. What else? Uh, okay, track, yeah. So I just got married the other week. Mazel tov. When was it? June 9th. Yeah. And uh, so my wife is a retired runner. Um she retired 2012, 2013-ish, around there. Um, people in Canada know her. her. name is Perdita Felicien. So she's a couple-time world champion in the hurdles, a couple-time world silver medalist in the hurdles. Um, and so, yeah, I have this, like, intimate connection with the sport of track and field. The thing is, I was a big fan of the sport even before, like, I met her. Yeah. Um, and it is weird about track and field in North America in that... To be a fan of the sport, of that sport in this continent, like you almost, you have to justify it. People to ask you, people ask you to justify it. Oh, you like track? Did you run in college? Like you have to have been some type yeah. of college athlete. Whereas I can to to enjoy track and field. Whereas I could be completely out of shape. And if I tell people I like football or MMA, people don't say, "Well, why do you like MMA? Were you a fighter?" Look at me, I'm. 110 pounds. <laughs> I got bad posture. Do I look like I'm a fighter? No. But people just accept it. Um, so I would encourage people to open their minds to that sport because it's a beautiful sport and pay attention to it uh, more frequently than in between Olympic Games. Yeah. Because for the most part in North America, we ignore that sport for three years. And when the Olympics come, everyone parachutes in. Same way they do with boxing and the same way I kind of do with basketball. Yeah. Which is when it gets important, everyone parachutes in with like long, with, with, with uh, loud and erroneous observations about the sport. Right? Whereas if you guys would just watch more in between, it'd be better. Like sports fans are incredible to me because they will tell me track and field is boring, but then they will watch the NFL combine and just watch guys run for 40 yards at a time. Um, and then speculate how these guys would do against the track and field guys. Uh, and guys, they would lose. Just stop. It's like Mayweather versus McGregor. Like <laughs> Now, with, with Marvin, I can't remember if Marvin Bracey is still with the Colts, but Marquise Goodwin is with the 49ers. Tyreek Hill is still playing. These are very, very, very fast guys. Marquise Goodwin is uh, was the world's top-ranked long jumper in 2016 and somehow managed not to make the Olympic team. Hmm. Tyreek Hill, like for Canadian... Uh, listeners. So basically when Tyreek Hill was in junior college, his big rival was Andre DeGrasse. And when Andre DeGrasse beat Tyreek Hill, like all the track nerds were like, oh my god, this guy beat Tyreek Hill. And think about how crazy it is for like people to be surprised that Andre DeGrasse won a foot race, yeah. right? But that tells yeah. you like the, the, the caliber of athlete we're talking about. But even these guys, if you put them straight into the Olympic final in the 100 meters, 
they would lose. But those guys, because they're experiencing that sport, are self-aware enough to know that they're not just going to pull a 9.6 out of nowhere. Whereas, like, all the football dudes, the football, these football dudes are nuts. Because, like, you ask a guy in the NFL, can you beat Deshaun Jackson? Uh, man, I don't know. He's one of the fastest guys in the league. Can you beat Usain Bolt? Yes. <laughs> no. That's going to work that no. But... I encourage you guys to watch a little more track and field. It's a fascinating sport, and they go from like city to it's like a traveling uh, road show, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a it's like a traveling road show and a soap opera all at the same time because like from meet to meet, there are storylines that go through, there are rivalries that develop, um, and then but it, it they go from town to town to town to town in Europe and sometimes in North America, and it's a fascinating sport. These guys are like are for real um, the best athletes on the planet. And Americans would realize it more if they just weren't so addicted to football. Because there's this idea in North America that if you are either, like, really fast or if you're, like, big and strong and agile, that you need to take these attributes and use them in a sport that is inherently self-destructive where you get to bash into other people. Like, these guys that throw shot put, they're as big as offensive linemen, just as nimble, foot speed just as fast. They have the same change of direction, balance, spatial awareness, all this stuff. But they've just decided that they don't want to go get a bunch of concussions, which, you know what, that's their prerogative. Um, Point is, if you're just into, like, human performance and just watching people do incredible things that you didn't think was possible, that's the sport for you. Uh, Morgan Campbell, if we had to come up with a title for this podcast, it would certainly be loud and erroneous. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, but that would be a bait and switch because we're it, not. Well, we're, are we the loud and erroneous ones? We are, are not we, the are ones. We casting because here's the people? thing. <laughs> here's the thing about me, anyway. Yeah. I might talk a lot, but I do have like an internal editor, so I'm not like right all the time. But for the most part, like I'm not going to say something. It's like picking fights with your boss at worst. I got whatever. We all get in work fights. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not going to say I'm undefeated in work fights, but I'm undefeated in work fights that I've initiated because if I don't already know that I'm right, I'm not going to go pick a work fight because I'm not trying to come back to you with my tail between my legs. Oh, boss, I was wrong. I'm sorry. But like, no, no. <laughs> I, if I know I'm right, then I'll go initiate the fight. And then like talking is the same thing. So there are all kinds of things that I think but don't say because I'm not trying to make an ass of myself. Uh, and you did not. And this was actually a pleasure. And, you know, it happened that we were going to talk after this weekend, and there are a lot of people that I could talk to, but I'm not going to get a smarter set of takes than from you. So I, I, takes is a stupid word. A set of opinions <laughs> than from you. Every time I write takes, I put with a capital T. With a capital T. <laughs> uh, Morgan Campbell, your beach. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.